Some commodities have had a positive reward versus, versus cash in the long run. That's up, some flat, some down. But then when you create a portfolio, it's been going up. And that sort of sounds mysterious. And, and that's why this is sometimes called turning water into wine or diversification magic, because it is about good diversification, good, good uh, actually creating a diversified portfolio and rebalancing to keep it diversified. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, thank you, Niels. Um, and welcome, everyone. Uh, we're really lucky today to have with us Auntie Ilmanen, who's been writing about and investing in markets using a quantitative lens going all the way back to the 1990s. Um, Antti has a master's in economics and law from the University of Helsinki. He has a PhD in finance from the University of Chicago. And he's been awarded the Leadership in Global Investment by the CFA Institute. Um, he started his career at Solomon Brothers, then worked for a decade as a portfolio manager at Brevin Howard, the big global macro fund. Um, and he's now global co-head of portfolio solutions at AQR Capital Management, uh, the, the big quantitative asset manager. Um, it's a particular treat for me to be able to talk to him because I've been reading his work for so long. Um, actually, going all the way back to his time at Solomon Brothers, he did a, a series called Understanding the Yield Curve, um, which I still think, if you can find it out there, is one of the most intuitive explanations for how the yield curve works that's been written. Um, I've used his first book, Expected Returns, as part of my investment class at UC Berkeley for many years. And we're here to talk about his new book, um, Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, Making Most When Markets Offer the Least. Antti Ilman, and welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks, Kevin, and really lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, one, there's many messages from your book. One message is that, hey, look, when we're faced with a challenging environment, we really need a sound decision-making process and not to get too caught up in short-term results. So I'm curious to start off how well you've been able to actually apply that in your own life. Um, 
you said that the first time you met Cliff Asnes, the co-founder of AQR, he took 20 bucks off you in a bet. And so I wondered, could you tell us what the bet was? And was it a good decision on your part? Was it a well-structured investment decision? Yeah, yeah. And before I tell that story, I just said, I do think that I'm sort of maybe using some of the book's themes better than he does in, in in, in the life that I am more serene and calm about investing and i don't know maybe that is the owner's owner's pressures that that <laughs> he faces but so 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 i i, I do feel that that uh, that uh, serenity is on on my side and uh, anyway so so but the story the story is this that so so i did my phd uh, 89 in chicago and even though cliff is at least five years younger than i am he was there one year before me and he was a teaching assistant in farmers class there, which was our most important class. And, and we got to know a little, but, but the, the first main interaction with him was in the PhD lounge, uh, where we basically made a 20, 20 bucks bet on whether Chicago Bulls would win championship 89-90. And, and Cliff was quite open about his wish to cash on another Chicago newcomer who thinks <laughs> that now that he has arrived, Bulls will finally win. Well, it turns out that I lost the 20 bucks, but, uh, but I was close. Bulls, you know, lost to Pistons and next year they, they did start their first, first three ring episode. And I was so lucky to be in Chicago at that time. And I did gain a good story. <laughs> Were you able to roll over the bet uh, the following year or was that just yeah, a one-time no, opportunity? It was one time. It's okay. <laughs> so. Your book is about navigating a world where expected returns are low. And I I saw that you've just posted on the AQR websites what you call some deleted scenes, some stuff that sounds like you wanted to have in the book, but <laughs> you were maybe couldn't fit in because of space issues. And the first graph on that I thought was particularly interesting. And it gives sort of like a new, I don't know, to me, a new twist on why expected returns might be low. I, I thought maybe you could describe it for us and that'd be a good way to kind of frame the conversation. Yeah, yeah. By the way, the space issue has got another cliff story, which is that he promised to write another forward for my second book. He, he wrote for the first one, even before I joined AQR, but he'd only do that if I keep it under 300 pages. So deleted scenes is sort of partly due to that pressure. But but I, I also had sort of personal goals to really make it shorter and so but yeah, yeah. So so overall the, the the sort of key theme on this low low expected return world is that all major asset classes have today historically low starting yields, thus high valuations. And the logic is that all assets are priced by discounting expected future cash flows by a common riskless discount rate and some asset specific premia. And when the common part is record low, you know, the negative real yields and sometimes nominal yields that we've seen, then even if all other premia on top of those are pretty normal, then all asset classes tend to be expensive at the same time. And that's where we've been the last decade. So I, I tell that story in the book, but I, I left out uh, and left, left to those deleted scenes, um, something which I like, but it's an approximation. So I, uh, so, so I was a bit shy about it. So I basically, I simplify the wealth portfolio into just a mix of stocks, bonds, and real estate. And I assume constant long-run cash flow growth rate. And that's, that's a big assumption, but, but with long-run expectations, it's not, not too unreasonable. Anyway, then I show this chart that you referred to. I show how the real discount rate uh, 
or which you can think of as expected return of this portfolio. It first rose from long run average 4% um, to above 6% around 1980, and then had this long run down to below 2% over the last 40 years. And now it started to come, come up from there. And so I think this is a helpful way of thinking of how we have really borrowed returns from the future when we capitalize all these cash flows so, so richly. So in comparison to a world where the discount rate or real expected return had been stable 4% over time, what, what, what we have seen is this basically richening and lots of windfall gains in recent, recent decades. We've enjoyed those high realized returns, but that also means that we have pretty much locked in lower future returns. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, you're head of the, um, you're co-head of the Portfolio Solutions Group. It sounds like you spend a lot of time talking to big institutional investors. And um, how much have they incorporated these lower expected real returns into their own assumptions? I know that's a very general question because everyone's going to be different, but I'm just curious, has there been... An acceptance of this, or is a reluctant uh, acceptance? What, yeah. What's going? I think I think partially, partially. Like you can see, like Norway adjusted its numbers lower, and you can see even with U.S. public pension plans that the numbers are coming down, but not not as fast as as those expected returns on markets have fallen. So the gap gap has actually been growing. So so overall, I'd say that there's been partial acceptance to that, but then then to the extent that there there is acceptance to it. It's not. It's 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 basically acceptance that maybe markets are offering less, but not that we will now start to earn less. That has been rare. So so there, I I, I tell that it is much more common for investors to basically say that we want to keep earning what we are used to earning, and if that requires taking more risk, so be it. We take more risk, and typically it was more equities or more illiquids or some kind of factor style investing. And nowadays it's primarily more illiquids, which is supposedly uh, able to solve this problem. And maybe, but I got some doubts on that. <laughs> well, yeah, let's talk about how maybe we can, you know, your suggestions for how this can, you, you can kind of deal with this world. So you, you frame the kind of investment process in terms of a pyramid. And at the base of the pyramid is the the real discount rate, the real cash yield. Um, and then you you say, well, we can then layer on uh, risk premium for 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 markets, so equities, bonds, credits, and commodities is the first layer, and then there's a kind of a higher layer up the pyramid, which is alternate risk premium. But let's let's confine ourselves to the sort of the base of the pyramid right now, because you know most investors are kind of that's where they operate. Um, so my my takeaway. And can, you know, tell me if I if you think I've missed it. But my takeaway from your recommendations are really two things. Um, one, make sure you have commodities in there as a as an asset class. Be careful how you do it. And then, secondly, when you combine the asset classes together in a portfolio, ideally you should use some type of risk weighting as opposed to kind of like a a sixty forty or an equal weight, which will basically bias most of your risk toward equities. So would you, how well did I summarize three or four chapters of your yeah, book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you did. But I'll answer the specific questions in a, in a second. But I just say that first, really, I think the, the most important thing is that the, below that, that ba- or the, the, the base at the cash level, okay. well, basically, 
when when sort of when cash is underwater, then there's little we can do, and it just makes every long-only investment expensive at the same time. And by the way, there is an interesting thing that long-short strategies are not mechanically suffering from the same thing because that level effect washes out between the long and short leg. And that's especially relevant now when we are in 2022, where rising real yields is the imminent fast problem that we are facing. And so basically all long-only assets are vulnerable. Long-short strategies don't face the same headwinds. Anyway, so so that's that's something. And and maybe another thing I do say that I do think again, like I, I don't think we'll talk much about illiquids, but I say that so most long only premia, I think, are pretty normal. They are not particularly compressed, at least, you know, after the bear market we've seen the last last few months. But I do think that based on the data that's available, uh illiquids tend to be on the rich side, they may have below average premia. So there's some data on private equity versus public equity valuations or direct real estate and listed rich valuations. And those suggest that actually those private things are more expensive uh, compared to history. So so besides the low base, I think some in some cases, and it's more in the illiquid space where I see the evidence on, on this um, compressed premium richness. But now to your long run answers, and I, I, I like it that you are asking about strategic questions, because that is very much a theme in the book. I mean, in 2022, it's so difficult to stay away from the current things, right. because it's such an important year now that what's what's happening. But I think the strategic case certainly says that commodities are very helpful inflation hedging asset, and and they sh they should be included with maybe some modest modest amounts. But but we find that pretty much all other investments in investor portfolios have got negative sensitivity, negative correlation to inflation surprises. So if you, unless you want to keep having the disinflationary tilt, which served us very well for decade, decades, you need to have something and there are not many things that help. Commodities are really top of the line that can help there. So that's a hedging story, but then so how to do it and whether whether you can earn positive rewards, we can, you, you'll have to ask again. But before that, <laughs> uh, before that, I just answer quickly to the second point. Yes, I think okay. better risk diversification is a key. I'm, I'm a, like, I just think, you know, better diversification is the low hanging fruit or easy way of improving portfolio quality. And I think, you know, doing it across market premia is is one way of doing it. I think it's even better with long short strategies like alternative risk premia, but but this is a good starting point. And and finally, I just say there that I totally recognize that leverage unconventionality challenge investor patience. So one of the book's themes is that while I believe in this greater risk diversification and so on, you'll have to ask how much you can move that direction based on your beliefs and your ability to stick with any beliefs. Uh, don't do it if you think that, that you can't sustain such portfolios through a couple of bad years. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of questions to unpack there. Um, let's loop back to commodities first, because I think that's just attracted so much attention and interest given the rise in inflation recently. You, you have some really interesting data on kind of long-run returns to commodities. And if I, I, I think I'm getting it right that if you look at it on a kind of a commodity, commodity, commodity by commodity basis on a single commodity basis, doesn't seem to be 
much excess return there. But when you package that together into a diversified portfolio of commodities and you have some, I guess, reasonable rule for rebalancing your allocation, then you do generate um, a return there. So could you kind of explain how that, that dynamic to people? Sure, sure. And it is it is counterintuitive. And, and, and I, I've told this story now uh, for a month to various investors in, in, in Europe, in many countries, and I think I'm getting a little better. And I don't know whether people would see my arms, but I'm, I'm sort of waving my <laughs> arms up and down. So showing some commodities have had a positive reward versus, versus cash in the long run. That's up, some flat, some down. So I'm going down, but on, and on average, that really has been flat, like you said, no premium. But then when you create a portfolio, it's been going up and that sort of sounds mysterious. And, and that's why this is sometimes called turning water into wine or diversification magic, because it is about good diversification, good, good, uh, actually creating a diversified portfolio and rebalancing to keep it diversified. And so what's going on? You, you, one has to be pretty geeky to, to get it. You have to at least know these differences between arithmetic and geometric uh, or, or compound, so simple and compound returns. So. Geometric means compound returns are always lower than arithmetic simple returns, and the gap widens the more volatility you have. So the high volatility hurts compounding. This, this, I'll, I'll, I'll take it that the audience knows it, otherwise you'll have to sort of read it in the book or somewhere else. And this is often called volatility drag or variance strain. Mm -hmm. And so commodities happen to have very high volatility, which means that there's a very high volatility drag difference between arithmetic and geometric, means uh, for single commodities. Can you give us just, I was, I was going to ask that, yeah, you know, like a scale, right? If you think about, so yeah, sort of yeah. double equities, something like that. Yeah, okay. yeah. And actually I just look, so, so yeah, that's, that's true for, if you look at monthly data and square root rule, but if you look at annual data, this is 38%. And so, but this is now getting okay. really geeky here. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> so, 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 but say, say 30% per commodity. But if you then diversify and commodities, not just be, being volatile, but also high, lowly correlated, you can diversify quite efficiently combining them. You can get that volatility down to almost half that, let's say 18% or something like that. And then you reduce that volatility drag. And that means that your compound return can be greater. So that's, that's a, that's a mechanics of it. Um, by reducing this volatility drag, you boost the, um, compound, average compound return or geometric mean from zero to something like 3%. And, uh, and so, so the main message is that through some weird diversification return, commodity portfolios have delivered positive long-run reward. And to me, that's still the best long-run estimate that I would make for the future. And when you look at the commodity indices out there, there's a whole variety of them. Are there ones that come kind of closest to the level of diversification you would need to capture that, um, you know, the, that essentially diversification benefit for an, for an investor? Yeah. Well, I think when you think of the two, I think, best known ones, sort of S&P, GSCIE is famous for pretty being pretty energy concentrated, so less mm -hmm. good diversification. And then BCOM has got, and, and some others have got uh, more balanced, whether it's nominally balanced or risk balanced, that, that varies. And, and for this study that actually, like I, I was telling about like my colleagues, I think they explored both uh, EQL weighted and EQL risk weighted approaches. Um, and and um, in our commercial world, I think we have got something which is risk balanced plus add some, some uh, bells and whistles 
whistle around it. But when you think of the basic ones, I think it is um, BCOM is closer. And it, it really, it, it seems that anything that gets, gives you decent balance is okay. And then it's a matter of asking whether T cost sort of hurt you too much when you are do, doing this. But if you just think that equal weight, it is commodity futures, it's very simple. It's really, it, it's putting putting one one unit, uh, one dollar or whatever um, to each of these commodities. And if, if there's a monthly roll on every, then you just keep doing monthly roll on everything. And that, that retains that equal weighting. So, so it's, it's sort of, if we are talking the same dollar amounts now here. Anyway, so, so it is, it's surprisingly easy to do that. I don't think the T-cost challenges are great. I do think that you can try to do a little bit better by even smarter than equal nominal weight approach. And that can help at the margin then. Um, but I, 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 I stuck to the very simple exercise here of just using equal weight in the book. So it sounds like something that like professional investors could execute without a whole lot of trouble for non-professional investors. They just need to be careful about selecting a commodity index that gives them that diversification and doesn't chew up too much in the trading cost if they're going to capture the commodity fair. risk premium. That's um, fair. And, and with, the, with the warning, though, that again, like I tend to say that with any diversifying investment, they often are somehow unconventional. And then there's a question of investor patience. Only equities are forgiven a bad decade. And I think commodities or what we'll later talk about, various styles and so on, it's, 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 it's a sticking with it that's hard then. Um, anyway, to be continued. So let's talk about bonds a little bit. It's also obviously a key market risk premium. You know, I really like your framework for kind of decomposing the the extra return you get on bonds. And you you say, hey, there's really, you know, there's more. But the three key components are a, a, a premium you get for inflation, a kind of premium you get or you pay, depending on how well bonds hedge a crisis, and then structural supply uh, demand imbalances. And, you know, if we kind of look at those three things over how they've evolved over the last 20 years, basically you get to a bond risk premium that's, you know, zero or negative um, at, the, at the moment. Um, you tell me if, the, that if you, you have a different view, but that's kind of my sense. So given that, does it still make sense in your, in your mind to have bonds in, in a kind of a diversified portfolio given the risk premium is so ultra low and that to me you know although you can think about those three as separate components they really boil down i think to inflation risk um obviously the inflation risk premium piece does but even the the safe haven demand if you think about the crisis we've had in the last 30 years have all been deflationary crises um, we talk about this a lot in the book that I wrote, explain why that's the case. But going forward, it's much more likely we'll have inflationary crises. You might even argue that's what we're experiencing now. Anyways, that's a, that's a lot of stuff in there. But really, how do you think of bonds right now? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, separating the strategic and tactical arguments. But even with tactical, I, w- I would say that the diversification story still is there um, with the important caveat that bonds are really good for disinflationary recessions. So if one thinks of some, some quadrants or whatever, so it's, it's, it's that one, but yes, inflationary recessions, stagflations, not, not so great. So, so, so if we are getting to that world, then, then it is, it is really tough for bonds. And then you've got to sort of rely on some, 
other benefits, so liability matching and, and so on. I do think in the long run, I, one, one emphasis I have in the book is that we do have a cyclical challenge right now. And, uh, and I think that will be bearish for bonds and many other assets because pretty much every, every other long only assets valuations, high valuations have been underwritten by those low bond deals. So I do think that there's going to be pain ahead on this one. And this is now discretionary man talking, not, not, uh, not the systematic strategic. <laughs> Understood. One. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but then, then as a, as a strategic argument, I would say that I think the bond deals have been kept low, especially by this sort of structural savings glut type of arguments. And they will, they will be with us, I think for a long, long term. And, and, you may, you are, you are, I, I'd really welcome you to throw sort of other counter arguments to that. But let me first now, now this was, this was really background and then, then to your questions. And, and it's, it's true that all of these different components, I think they can be bad for bonds, but actually even more so because you were referring to just the required bond risk premium on top of mm -hmm. expectations. But first I say that overall bond yield can be split into expected average inflation rate expected real policy rate on top of that and beyond these expectations and the required bond risk premium. Okay. And then you talked about what's, what's there. And, and, and indeed, I, I think that that required bond risk premium came first down by inflation premium coming down in 90, 80s, 90s, and then stock bond correlation flipping negative and stocks becoming a safe haven asset, sort of negative beta helping further richening in the, in the last 20 years. And then most recently in the last decade, plus the technicals, uh, especially from your, from the QE. And so now the triple whammy that I, I, that I said could be there for bonds was about inflation expectations rising, level dependent inflation risk premium, because I agree with you that inflation uncertainty tends to vary with inflation level. So that's, that's sort of, that's rising. And then it turns out that stock bond correlation also seems to have, um, uh, I don't know, relation to, to inflation uncertainty. We just published our new quarterly alternative thinking, which is about stock bond correlation. And one theme is that the sign of that stock bond correlation depends a lot on the relative uncertainty of inflation and growth. Anyway, I defer to that, that thing there. So that's three negative things, but actually I can add all the other components there as well, because when you think of, when you think of that expected pol real policy rate, well, so-called, I, I, is it called now like Taylor principle maybe says that if expected inflation rises, actually central banks should, should tighten more than that rise to tighten conditions enough to get that inflation back, back into the bottle. And, and then QE has probably been also has Q, the shift from QE to QT is influenced by this inflation environment. So pretty much every component here, I think has got, I don't know, some relation to what's been happening in the last year. And that is scary. And just then I say that to balance that, there are other considerations. Bonds are good diversifiers. The savings flat story I already told. Fed's tightening now could boost its credibility and keep uh, long-run inflation expectations more. I'm not, not, not so sure about that. And there are other forces, other types of demand, LDI demand, regulatory demand, safe asset demand. All of these can support bonds. Finally, the yields are already higher, and that could that could create some some natural demand for bonds. So again, balancing things, but but there are it's easy to tell a pretty bearish story for bonds from many directions here. And does that change your view on the willingness to use kind of risk weightings in a portfolio? Because that typically involves 
you know, uh, applying some leverage to bonds because historically bonds have had better, you know, especially short-term bonds, good return reward ratios or risk reward ratios. So they would typically get a kind of a leveraged position in that kind of portfolio. Yeah, I I, I, th- I think there's, so, so, you know, like especially people who want to criticize risk parity talk about just stocks and bonds and the lever- levered bonds. And that, that, that story mm-hmm. has always been has always been out there, but that forgets that, that there is a third bucket, which is the inflation bucket typically, and there might be others, but those are sort of, you know, equities, bonds, inflation bucket, especially commodities tend to be there in, 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 in these type of risk balance approaches. And then the, the bond part and, and, and the inflation part, they, they do tend to wash out pretty nicely. This risk, risk parity type of strategies did quite well in 1970s, and I don't think they are doing too badly this year compared to equity dominated portfolios might, might well be outperforming them. So, so, um, so I think it's a, it's a narrow angle that, that, uh, I don't know, criticizes the levered bond story. I think the broader, broader idea, as long as you have got the commodities there, no problem. I mean, I, I like the yeah, idea okay. of having, having long run risk balance as a strategic goal. So it sounds like in that sense, you're thinking of risk more in terms of underlying macro factor risk as opposed to asset class risk. Yeah. Which I know are related. Yeah, they are related. And that's in some way one beauty. And again, I love even more, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about long short strategy style premium, alternative risk premium than, than uh, risk parity only across asset classes. But But it is interesting that whether you start from pure portfolio volatility and correlation statistics, or you start from macro balance, you end up in pretty similar places. So, you know, I, I don't know. This is sometimes AQRs and Bridgewater's approaches uh, ended up in pretty same places despite starting from different places. And I'm, I'm sure there are others. So, I got you. So, what you're saying is that, you know, it, you, you start with what sounds like maybe a different philosophy on how you put the portfolio together, and then you end up with <laughs> portfolio allocations that aren't. Aren't that different? Yeah, and that that you know, I I do love that type of robustness when it when I see it happening, and and I think there's a good logic to it. Okay, let's talk about equities a little bit, and then we'll migrate into talking about alternative risk premium. So, I get, I have two questions on equities. One is kind of an unfair one. <laughs> I, I flagged it to you earlier just because I think it's something that a lot of people wrestle with and maybe some of your clients have wrestled with. You've got a really nice graph in the book where you you have a kind of forward-looking, um, you know, just an estimate of forward-looking expected returns for various equity asset classes. Not surprisingly, the developed markets are very low, um, but there is one area, emerging markets, where, um, you know, valuations don't look that expensive. You could argue maybe even a little bit below historical averages. So there's a potentially a structural argument for saying, hey, let's um, let's put a little more weight in emerging markets. The counter to that thing that I wrestle with, and I expect a lot of other people wrestle with, is they typically are high beta assets. So if we're <laughs> if we're worried about a, a correction, especially a correction that a, that materializes quickly in developed markets. Then you would expect emerging markets almost to to do worse in that environment because they're a high beta. So how do you, how do you kind of put those two together? On the one hand, structurally, emerging markets look attractive, arguably. On the other hand, um, structurally, developed markets look risky, and emerging markets typically have a high <laughs> high beta to that. 
Um, and we know market timing is difficult. So I don't know. How, how do you, your own framework, how do you put those things sure. together? Yeah, I mean, it's a very broad question. So I want to I wanna answer it broadly. And, and, and I actually first go very strategic, like a bird, bird's eye view, and then, then, then zoom mm-hmm. to the tactical. And, and I think I'll, I'll lean to the tactical then heavily. But, but actually, in the long run, like you said, one would think that the more volatile or higher beta emerging market should earn a positive premium. That's true in CAPM world, but, but I'll, I'll throw three arguments why that might not be the case. And, and I think like, like I, okay. I'm very open to, uh, possibility that emerging markets don't, don't in the long run earn more. So one is just historical data. And I, I show there some data from, um, Dimson and his co-authors, which shows that over the last hundred plus years, actually emerging markets did not outperform emerging markets. And, uh, they, they, there have been some developed markets. Sorry. Yeah. They developed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yep. and, and, uh, uh, that the main explanation to that one is that in 1940s, Japan and China that were emerging markets lost almost everything. And so, but, but those things happen in, maybe historically, certainly more so in emerging markets. So, so that's history isn't really telling that, that, that they would. Another intuition is that emerging markets uh, edge comes from their faster economic growth. And certainly they've had faster economic growth, but the, you know, many, many people have commented on this. And I got a box in the book about showing how tenuous the links are between economic growth and actually earnings growth, dividend growth, or equity returns. And so, you know, China is a poster boy on this one where equity performance has not matched the, the GDP growth in recent decades. Anyway, so so that's that's a second. And the last one is going ahead a bit to the styles or alternative risk premium. The defensive style basically says that boring assets tend to beat speculative assets within the asset class, or at least they offer better risk-adjusted returns. And the main explanations to this this quite prevalent result is investors have lottery preferences and leverage aversion. So emerging market equities could offer no premium because while they have got a higher beta, they also have got this lottery ticket characteristics and embedded leverage. And so so that's that's my sort of long-run caution to, mm-hmm. for expecting higher returns on emerging markets. But I am more positive on that for the reason that you said, just the valuations and, and you know, I know value, contrarian timing is hard and uh, early EQR strong and all of that, but there's been such a long time now and such 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 a big uh, difference, especially bet- between emerging market performance and US equity market performance. I think maybe 12 years of continuous underperformance or so. And so I think that the the, the Time for that pendulum to turn really could be here, but but then we get to your counterpoint, which is that Fed tightening often hurts emerging markets, and and that's definitely definitely true. I guess that's the old like well not old, but Helen Ray has got this uh, global cycle story, which which again it's 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 an older story, but uh, but but she she made a nice theory theory about it. So I think I think it's it is important. I would I can only counter that by saying again valuations are extremely wide. And then emerging markets have, many of them anyway, they are heterogeneous. Many have better fundamentals than in the olden days. Um, and and then there is this, this thing that they actually have tended to provide some inflation hedging or or protection to, de- to developed markets. So, so netting all of this, and it's really coming from those cheap valuations, uh, I am constructive on emerging markets here, but recognize that might be another time of do it, but do it only six months from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. I think you can pretty much trace the emerging market underperformance 
to uh, when I overweighted them in my personal portfolio, and that is about 12 years ago. Um, okay, so let's make a bridge. Let's start walking, I guess, up the pyramid a little bit. And b- before we kind of fully do that, w- when you think about, you know, because a, a lot of your book is, I think, the audience is, is uh, pr- for professional investors, but there's a lot in there that um, that uh, personal investors can take away. When you think about getting the equity risk premium exposure as a non-professional investor, would you try to get that in a way that differs from market cap weights? In other words, would you try to take advantage of, you know, some value or some of the low risk um, in, you know, kind of a, a portfolio that tilts in those directions? Or are you skeptical about, you know, how those products have been created? Yeah, no, I, I you know, I am, I am a big believer, and and we'll get to that then in the uh, long short strategic context in some of these deals. Not again, not lots of uh, different ideas, but a few key ideas. And when it comes to stock selection, I think value, momentum, and defensive slash low risk quality, they 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 are useful deals, and and I get the benefits of market just market caps. That that is the that's the only one that everybody can hold. That's the lowest lowest costs and easiest story to tell and so on. But I do think that if you can't get enough of these style tilts in long short portfolio, and that I think often happens because of leverage constraints or so on, then I would also do them in the long only portfolios. So I think it is worthwhile. But again, it's only worthwhile if you can stick with them. So I, I like I like. And I like them diversified. I like a few of them together, uh, and I definitely like them patient. So, so if you if you don't think you can have patience with them, patience with them, then just market cap is good, and you 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 don't miss too much anyway. What you get in long only world, what what you will never get so great diversification benefits as you do in long short. That uh, you only right. you only get some marginal improvements into returns. So if even that's hard to stick with, then then uh, go with the market cap. So let's, okay, let's fully move up the pyramid to talk more about these alternative risk premium. Um, everyone's got their own different ways of thinking about them. Uh, a lot of people call them factors. How, how, how do you frame them? How do you think about these, um, these four categories of alternative risk premium that you talk about? Yeah. Like describe, yeah. just describe like what the portfolios would, generic portfolio would look like. Yeah. Well, let me just just first say that really the pyramid used to be as simple as alpha and beta. So beta at the base and alpha, market risk premia and alpha. And then people added something in the middle, which which has gotten different names, but I call them now here alternative risk premia. And they are alpha-like in being uncor- hopefully uncorrelated with market risk premia, but they are beta-like in being systematic, um, rules-based, widely known. So a definition would be that this alternative risk premia world, systematic long short strategies using publicly known ideas like style premia, what what are my four themes, value, momentum, carry defensive. Um, And importantly, they are themes that have been rewarded in the long run in many different asset classes. So that that gives me lots of confidence in these strategies. Of course, it helps that you've got economic rationale and implementability issues and so on. But at the heart, they are driven by the long run empirical support for sure. Um, and and then 
there are many ways of implementing them, long-only portfolios where you just blend them with lots of market risk, or you can create long-short portfolios, and, uh, and again, many ways of doing that, but I tend to like them diversified. I got some, some of them I like, and that, that probably will come. Some of them I like if they, even alone, if they have got some equity, if they hedge well equity market direction, because that is at the heart of your portfolio risk. So anything that can help on that one might be fine standalone as well. Others I would want to see diversified. So basically my, my takeaway from your discussion of alternative risk premium is that ideally if you can get a diversified blend of these these risk premia, that should potentially increase your return or increase the sources of return you can access. And it should be fairly low correlated with the market risk premium. And there's no real compelling evidence one way or the other that the these risk premium are unusually high or low. Maybe some argument that the value risk premium is a little bit above average. Um, you, you base a lot of that recommendations, conclusions, et cetera, on studying quite long-term returns to these factors. And, you know, this is the area that I spent most of my career on. And um, I was trading these live back in the 1990s. But even then, we were were always a little skeptical of using long-term data. Um, And the reason was, you know, unlike market you know, unlike asset markets like equities or bonds, there's no one was trading a value factor or a momentum factor back in the 1930s. And even if you could calculate it, um, the trading costs, the financing costs may have been prohibitive, et cetera. So does that mean you have to apply some kind of haircut to the historical returns that you get out of these long-run studies? I mean, how do you think personally about framing and using those very long-term return data? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, good summary and uh, and uh, and good challenge there. So, so first, I do think that that long run evidence is is important. Basically, any statistician would tell that we we just we need a lot of data to have meaningful data. In in reality, there is this this thing that if you get hundred years of good data versus three bad years in your own portfolio, <laughs> statistician will give you very different advice than than what virtually every investor will do. Uh, and, and that's, that's part of the, part of the challenge here. But so I, I think it's, it's great if we, if we've got evidence that these strategies have worked for a century or in some cases, two centuries and in many different asset, many different countries, many different asset class context, contexts and so on. So I become more convinced of, let's say, stock selection value when I see that besides it having worked since 1960s, People have gone back to 1920s and more recently to 1820s to show that, hey, this has worked even on paper before trading costs and so on. But but something was making these things work at gross before trading cost level uh, for really long time through lots of structural changes that economies have faced and so on. So that is that is interesting. And then when similar concepts work, when you move to other places like ask whether value works in country allocation in stocks or bonds or currencies and in so many different pockets of financial markets. So so that that type of uh, what I say PPR, uh, persistent, pervasive and robust evidence that we get of these things working, I think it's great and, and certainly it boosts my conviction and, and my patience with these strategies. And I am trying to 
share that belief and share, <laughs> share that message, share that logic will, with, with people. So that's, that's really the positive story. And, and that's why I have chosen again, it, this, this type of good, good results don't show up for most things and, but, but they do tend to show for umbrella concepts like value, momentum, carry defensive or low risk. And, and roughly speaking, if, if we talk of really simple versions of this, buy cheap things, buy last year's winners, buy high yielders, buy the boring stuff. That's, uh, and boring, by the way, again, it can be statistically boring, low risk, low beta, or fundamentally boring, good quality and so on. So, so those, those, those themes I think are great. Then, then there are many other candidates size and that's that's the most famous one where where i think the evidence is not so great and then there are things but with much shorter histories and so on but but again these are great and i really don't think that we could we could argue that that the success is due of this is due to data mining or overfitting the evidence just is is too prevalent on that but what you are then saying is that that maybe maybe that long run history just doesn't have any practical value because trading costs were higher in the olden days and and there are other other considerations why we should be doubtful about the investability and uh, implementability of of any of these strategies in the olden days and i think partial answer is what you said is is that let's discount those historical numbers and probably discount them more the further back you go because trading costs probably were higher we don't have good data before 1990s what trading costs were. So we, we just pretty much have to, have to guesstimate those things. But so I think, I think it's, it's still interesting to see that these things worked cross and I would do what you said. I would, um, discount them. And by the way, the discounting can be due to the concern for overfitting data mining, which again, I don't think it's relevant here, but the other logic is that you should discount these things because the world has changed. There could be some, I don't know, ex exogenous changes, but, but the, the, the endogenous thing is that, that these things have become more widely known. Alpha, what used to be alpha has morphed into beta or alternative beta, and we should discount even this recent decades performance. And I think there's something, something right about that. And ultimately, uh, the, the sad thing is that while it would be nice to be very scientific about that discounting, how to do it and so on, I think it's it, it's always going to be an art as much as science, and it will depend on your beliefs, how much you would discount. Would you discount all of it away or half of it away or some kind of time scale or, or complexity tweaking on that and so on? Really, really hard. It's a, it's kind of shocking to me when, uh, you know, I have some students at Berkeley now do projects for me and I'll say, well, it'd be nice for you to, you know, create this factor and come back to me in a couple of weeks when you, when you're, you've done that. And then two days later, they've done it. You know, they're, they, the access to data and the computing yeah. power is remarkable. And that, you know, I had teams of PhDs working for me in the nineties and early two thousands. And, you know, that, that sort of work would have taken substantially more time. So that's the, the ability to kind of test and look at these strategies has gone up. Although I, I don't know that that's actually in some ways a, a, a good thing. Um, but I, I want to, um, so there, there's always the argument that the, the world has changed. Um, and there's another argument, which you counter quite nicely in the book, which is, hey, there's just so much capital chasing these ideas that the opportunities are compressed. And you don't, discount that, uh, you take it quite seriously and you say, well, hey, look, if that was the case, then we ought to see, like in almost any kind of arbitrage relationship, we ought to see the, the opportunity set get compressed. And one way to 
one crude, quite crude way, but still not uh, something that we ought to consider is uh, is valuation spreads. So could you could you explain just the idea of valuation spreads and how you use them to think about whether or not too much capital is flown into these sure. factors or alternate risk premiums? Sure, and and while it may be crude, it it might be the best that we have. Um, in, in, mm-hmm. in thinking about these crowding, crowding concerns here. And, and by the way, like the, there is, before that, I just say that some people want to make a big, big distinction between sort of risk-based explanations and behavioral explanations. That if it's, if it's a risk-based, then even if people know about it, then, then this, this can last and so on. And maybe, but I think the, the, the counter, counter story is that you have got limits of arbitrage that's gonna, that's gonna stop you. And I think there are really lots of real world limits of arbitrage, including the fact that some of these strategies that have got behavioral origins, they still end up having a few bad years or then there are deleveraging on and crowding concerns and so on. And all of these sort of give the risk premium even to non-risk based strategies. So again, then drilling to that crowding, crowding question, I think it's most intuitive if people think of it through through the lens of overall equity market direction. Equity premium is an, now we are talking about long short premia, but equity premium is is one of those where if everybody becomes more risk averse at the same time, and I'm thinking October '87 or March 2020 or Lehman Lehman event or so, if everybody becomes more risk averse, or, or this morning, truly, truly, <laughs> yeah, I haven't checked You're the right. afternoon yet. That, so, but so so. Uh, in that situation, we can't all run to the exit at the same time. We need somebody on the other side. And there is this, this mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I really push this that it's so simple, but it's so easily forgotten that for every buyer, there's a seller. Let's repeat it for every buyer, there's a seller. And how do you then make sense of this? And so basically, it turns out that with equity markets, if everybody becomes more risk averse, valuations have to adjust. We can't all sell our equities. Okay. Well, the same logic works with long short strategies. We can't all become more positive or more hostile towards, let's say, value strategy or whatever it is. It really, if there is a net change in investor preferences or aggregate change in investor preferences towards these strategies, it should show up in valuations. It can't show up in net flows because they will by construction be zero. And so, so therefore we want to look at the valuations and, and through 2010s when when this uh, alternative risk premium factor investing was getting more popular, my first cut answer was to, or, or exploration was to check what's happening to their valuations. And, and they were not getting systematically richer. And with hindsight, by the way, like if we think of why value strategy had such a disappointing performance, you really can't say that it was because it was so crowded because, because it had already had a quite a disappointing performance, uh, like or just middling performance before before the really bad year started in 2018. And so, and that, that showed up also in valuations. The valuations were nothing special. The only pocket of equity or factor styles was the defensive or quality style, uh, which was expensive in much of 2010s. And I've written about it, how that, how, how that could sustain itself. And the strategy ended up still doing well and and there are there's some really geeky stories on how that can happen but um but but basically um the crowding explanation was never supported 
by valuations, not not in not looking ahead and not not now with hindsight when we think of what happened in the last ten years. And it's weird. I, I really like I, I would have expected to see more given the popularity, but we didn't see it. And so so I don't think that the crowding was as excessive as many claimed. Yeah, and certainly um Certainly should be less so, at least in value. Undoubtedly, um, undoubtedly. Recently, yeah. after the uh, yeah. kind of Again, bloodbath if, if, in the if last. If the flows do matter, and there were some some flows, then then they certainly went out of value until until recently. Let, let's talk. Maybe we've um, kind of try to end the conversation by talking about this defensive bucket. You know, sometimes it's called quality minus junk. Um, other there's other measures that are statistical, um, and you know, my personal perspective is that you know, when I, I started using these, they were very much kind of the accounting based versions, um, and they had some nice properties to them, but I could never really see that there was a lot of risk to them. In other words, I, I couldn't. I could see how you were exploiting people's tendency to, um, you know, like reported earnings relative to structural earnings, or you know, un- basically underestimate balance sheet quality, et cetera. But it didn't seem like you were. Get- it was more like a a, a pure a pure behavioral explanation that always made me nervous because I I liked to invest in factors where there was a risk-based explanation where I really knew why I was being compensated. And you, you kind of (laughs) reframe the question in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. You say, well, actually, you know, they really belong uh, more broadly in this kind of bucket that has to deal with, you know, basically, you know, statistical factors that where you, you know, high statistical risk markets or stocks do poorly. So could you maybe just explain a little bit more about that, that broad bucket, that defensive bucket, what you think belongs in there and why you think that bucket tends to do well? So besides value, momentum and carry, sort of by now it's old, but, but it, 10 years ago, it was a new kid on the block, sort of thinking of defensive, low risk quality. So all, mm-hmm. all of these characteristics, they, um, they, they were found to be very, very important. And, and you, you can think of that the umbrella concept can be taken differently. And actually my author, uh, colleagues have written, written both from the quality perspective as an umbrella concept and then low risk or defensive umbrella concept at the top. But basically, in all cases, we are saying that boring investment, whether whether we, and if we talk of stock selection, boring stocks tend to do surprisingly well. Um, and uh, and something similar happens in other asset, asset classes. So boring stocks do surprisingly well and more speculative stocks do uh, surprisingly badly. And this can be based on beta or volatility, some statistical measures like that, or it can be based on a variety of uh, quality metrics like good profitability, stable earnings, good quality earnings, and so on. And and uh, from both types of literature, the empirical finding has been has been strong that those those uh, safer safer more boring investments have got higher sharp ratios and sometimes even higher returns than the more speculative ones. And and so you know this goes so against finance theory risk should be rewarded when you think of beta risk or something like that. And that's why I, I like to take it from beta and then sort of 
add the quality and you sort of start from quality. But, but so I, I, I think um, the key risk-based explanation cannot cannot work here. And this is same. So basically for these types of strategies or trend following, you really, the way you said that you, you, you like to have that risk-based explanation, sorry, then you are going to give up on wonderful things like this quality low risk or trend following, which which have tended to do really well when bad things happen, you know, in, in big equity market drawdowns and so on. So, so to me, that's, that's, that's the key source of sort of risk-based explanation, not the absolute volatility. So get, getting sometimes some, some big ugly drawdown is when that drawdown happens is what's important. And again, these strategies, if they sometimes suffer a lot, that doesn't tend to be big equity market falls. In those times, they have tended they have tended to do well. So I, I think you can't tell a risk-based explanation. So there's gotta be something else. And I think there's something else, I can tell it better from, from this statistical low risk perspective where I already referred to the leverage aversion and lottery preferences. Um, and I think quality is sort of, I don't know, it's a cousin of that. And there, there, there are some underreaction to quality is another type of story that people say. Um, but but I, I like this leverage aversion, lottery preferences stories because they just make so much sense to me. I think basically the more speculative stocks, the most speculative stocks in the market, they tend to have those lottery characteristics and they tend to have embedded leverage and they tend to therefore be expensive. And that makes that makes this opportunity very long lasting. And uh, and you can think of that leverage aversion that I said uh, as part of the so-called limits to arbitrage uh, literature, that the opportunity stays there, even though there's a behavioral argument, it stays there because because there's not enough money on the other side to take it away. And I think the leverage aversion sort of explains that. So so that's my broad story there. I am a, clearly a fan of those types of strategies. I said that even maybe more fan than for diversification <laughs> and empirical evidence is, I think, super robust for them. They will have sometimes bad windows, but the long run stories are really good and, and they work in that the stories work in many different asset classes. And I think the economic stories I just told are reasonable. So, uh, so you can hear that these are, these are even more my favorites than the classic value momentum carry type of styles. It's interesting you, you, um, two comments on that. One is, um, even if you have a certain degree of skepticism, I would encourage you to think about them because you have this really nice table in one of the later chapters where you kind of look at various factor performance in, in different equity drawdowns and the, um, the defensive, the quality factor really does, um, I think is the kind of most consistent performer, most consistent hedge, if you want to call it, to those drawdowns. So it's worth re revisiting the skepticism to that because the potential reward seems pretty strong, especially in the environment that we're in. And to me, I, I actually see a strong risk-based explanation for the statistical defensives because you end up shorting high beta stocks. And if you've ever had a portfolio of high beta stocks that you're short, that can be exceptionally uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You can get stopped out very easily. Um, and oftentimes you can't locate those. So there's a lot of technical reasons why those are, those are risky portfolios to hold. So thinking of quality kind of in that vein um, <laughs> kind of helped me get over my, <laughs> my aversion to that factor. But it's even if you don't believe that story, I, th I, I think that table that you've got is suggests it's worth, definitely worth thinking about as a 
especially in this kind of environment, we do expect drawdowns or drawdowns are more. I Chapter think, more 13 likely. for anybody who wants to peruse the book. Chapter 13. <laughs> um, one thing I kind of. You know, we we have to wrap up, but typically I'm a I like to consume books, old fashioned, you know, paper and scribble on them and and do things like that. Take them out to the back garden and read. But I, I uh, and I did that with your book, but I also got the um, Kindle version and read it on my computer. And the advantage of that is the charts really pop, and you've got a lot of information in your charts and text. And when you see it on the computer, you get the full color coding and and so I would uh, I would recommend to people when they get the book to at least think about well, maybe get both versions, but definitely try to make sure you get the most of the tables and charts because there's really some excellent stuff in there. Um, I was positively surprised myself when I saw belatedly then the Kindle version, and because the, the book itself has got black and white, and the Kindle has got color colors in pictures, I I, I was very happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Really, it really does uh, make a difference. So maybe we try to tie this all up together. Um, when you when you go out and talk to your um, institutional clients, um, do you start the meetings by holding hands and and um, saying the Serenity <laughs> Prayer? Yeah, yeah. So I I almost call the book the Serenity Prayer or in, sorry, investing with Serenity, and I do uh, put at the beginning of the uh, first chapter I. I I write the serenity prayer because I see beautiful linkages to it. And, and basically the, the idea is that investors have not serenely accepted the low expected returns, nor separately do they actually serenely accept a few years of bad performance. And, and patience theme is another big, big thing. So, so I thought that there were a couple of really nice linkages to my, to my key themes. I start with, with uh, highlighting those, and I think they do resonate. But ultimately, I do also think that I was very lucky. The book was meant to be very strategic, but I think a year ago, there would not have been as much as good reception for it, partly because the markets were so exuberant then, and now obviously we are on the other side. And so the title already uh, says a different story and our strategies are doing very nicely in this environment. Perhaps again, because they don't face the headwinds that all long-only investments uh, face so value and trend can really shine this year. So I think all of that, all of that helps. I think investors are taking the taking the message very well, but uh, they also recognize that the problems, to uh, both the short-term and long-term problems, are there without any easy answers. So if we kind of pull this together, I think what it sounds what you're saying is, in terms of the market risk premium, diversification is key. Commodities um, really do provide some meaningful inflation hedging characteristics. If you can invest in them in a diversified way, make sure that your weightings to the various market risk premiums are are risk weighted with a, a, a level of leverage that you're comfortable with that you can ride out. And then if you're in a, if you're able to, if you're able to access alternative risk premiums, they're they're also an additional source of diversification and uh, potential of an extra layer of, of return. And within that, uh, the quality kind of defensive piece has some really, particularly some really nice crisis hedging characteristics that would kind of help you ride out the whole thing. So that's, um, that might not be a, a portfolio that's going to give you world-beating returns, but it should, um, 
you know, kind of help you navigate this world, you know, fairly well. It was a, do you agree with yeah, that broad I summary? Do, I do. This is, this is a, both, both as a strategic argument and I think it fits, fits tactically. I mean, I, I'm normally quite humble about tactical uh, view taking, but I do shyly in conclusions hint that the, the challenging environment for market direction here and, and possibility of basically sinning a little being somewhat uh, bearish bearish for 2022 and and I confess I, I would still after even after these losses I would I would stick with stick with that um, and and I, I love that I'm just grateful that some of these strategies that are meant to be uh, market neutral are actually doing well in this environment it doesn't you know market neutral <laughs> means sometimes they do sometimes they don't I love when some of these do now. It's it's just uh, this is something that uh, I, I care almost as much as average returns. Uh, I'm in minority there. Well, excellent, Angie. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, and um, like I said, we really appreciate the you know the insight and the time, and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, and with that, I'll uh, pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Kevin and Antti, for a brilliant conversation on how to make the most when markets offer the least. Antti's latest book is incredibly topical for all investors as we are faced with the aftermath of decades of falling yields and soaring asset prices, and where we may have locked in lower expected returns for the foreseeable future. And even if investors do expect lower returns in the future, most of them don't expect it for their own portfolios. Solutions to this, like finding assets and or strategies that work well during inflationary periods, when we know that most traditional assets have a negative sensitivity to inflations, are hard to find. But not for those of you, of course, who are regular listeners to this podcast. I also enjoyed hearing Antti talk about bonds, as it is so easy to have a bearish stance on bonds right now. So the question if it still makes sense to have any bonds in your portfolio is highly relevant. Make sure you go and follow Antti's and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed in this level of detail on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.